0: All right, good morning everyone, and welcome back to Grace Upon Grace. We are looking at page 246 and following today, which continues Kleinig's theme of the hidden battle, talking about spiritual warfare, spiritual struggle. And Kleinig has been, uh, we're in the middle of this section, called Sober Vigilance, where we have heard those, those scriptures speak about um, the importance of spiritual sobriety and spiritual vigilance. And Kleinek has given us two ideas in that respect, back on page 242 and 243. Those ideas are um, the practice of self-examination by way of the Ten Commandments. That, that is a form of spiritual vigilance. And then second, through the voluntary practice of fasting, that's over on 243. And then over on 244, we shift gears to resistance, dealing with the enemy, good riddance. And he brings up this idea that we've been examining. That um, I think very practically he talks about having some sort of compost pile out in his yard that attracts rats. And the whole idea is that our sins, our guilt uh, over the things that we've done, on the one hand, as well as those sins committed against us and the anger and resentment that develops. On the other hand, these things are like trash, like garbage in our souls that attract the rats, namely the unclean spirits. That's the theme and motif he's been dealing with. So, to make a distinction there between guilt and shame, it would be guilt is, are the, ne- the negative feelings we have on account of our sins, and shame would be negative feeling. Feelings on account of those who have sinned against us. That's one possible distinction to make. Now, over on 246, the new material, looking at that first full paragraph, Kleinig writes Guilt and anger are the two chief weapons of Satan. They, however, must be wielded skillfully for maximum effect. In fact, they are best kept in service for as long as possible. With them in his hands, namely Satan's hands, he can bluster, threaten, and terrorize for years on end. The sense of guilt from wrongdoing must be sustained without identifying the actual sins that have been committed. That's key. The best approach to sustain guilt is to promote neurotic guilt that makes people feel badly about something trivial or to arouse a general pervasive sense of guilt, so that people feel guilty without knowing quite why or what to do about it. So here you can see how this idea lines up with Kleinig's first suggested practice of spiritual vigilance, namely self-examination. Because when you examine yourself by way of the Ten Commandments, you examine your conscience, now you are naming the sins, quantifying the sins, laying them on Jesus, being absolved of them, taking out the trash, as it were. And no longer is it this nebulous collection of garbage and guilt and this sort of woe-is-me attitude and this woe-is-me feeling in your soul but rather it's, no, these are the things that I have done wrong, I have come clean, I am forgiven, the trash has been taken out. So, here you can see how those two thoughts work together. And you can see the importance of identifying actual sins. Picking up where we left off, Kleine continues similarly, focusing on the character of the offender, rather than the actual offense, fosters the sense of righteous indignation. The best way to do this is to generalize and magnify the anger so that it demonizes the hated offender is, and is projected onto the whole world and God. Okay. So, in this respect, I think if we were to speak of it most concretely, it would be When someone sins against you, again, the devil does not want you to actually look at it via the Ten Commandments, find what specific sin it is, and then hand it over to God. And perhaps even reflect on the fact that you've been guilty of that very same sin, and with the forgiveness that you've received, so you forgive them. Satan doesn't want any of that concrete type of thing. He wants, well, that was offensive. Satan wants us to just simply have that thought of, I'm offended. I'm hurt. That was uncalled for. That was inappropriate. Um, we're not naming the sin, are we? No, we're keeping it nice and nebulous. And then, and then as such, it can't easily be quantified and handed over. It must simply be uh, something that is held onto and festered and this is the way you are. This is the way it is. type of statements usually follow. And those kinds of absolutes, and then we are we find ourselves locked into a pattern of generalized anger, generalized hatred against another person or people, and Satan simply uses that to you know allows that to fester and expand. So Kleinig is warning against this. Now, ultimately, and I think this is the Kleinig's point in the last lines, ultimately when this festers to the point of taking over, a person begins to perceive everything in light of this anger and bitterness and resentment. The entire world, and perhaps even God. When this this really takes root and takes hold and takes over a person, they stop going to church, or they don't want to go to church at all. And usually they'll find some lame excuse or they'll find some fault in the church, or a, or a person in the church. But um, that's usually one of the symptoms, and I think that that's what Kleinig is pointing out, is this, this, uh, the, hated of, or the, the demonization of the hated offender is then projected onto the whole world and onto God. So that's the other side of Satan using... Um, neurotic guilt, this general feeling of guilt, or this, on the other hand, this general feeling of shame and offense as opposed to specifying the sin and dealing with it.
1: Is there a place for righteous anger in the second example? Somebody has done something that is truly wrong, Yes. and you're going to forgive it, but wouldn't there be logical consequences? Or... It should be dealt with within the body because it was wrong? And
0: Yes. Yes, forgiveness does not mean that there are no consequences, temporal consequences, right? Um, so that if, if a person commits murder and is forgiven by the pastor, that forgiveness is valid, but it doesn't negate the civil penalty or the civil making right of that wrong via justice, right? And we can then from that extend out into all other circumstances and say, look, the, uh, gosh, there's a horrible example of this. So, so the, this, is, this is how the story is told. Okay. So a uh, a woman comes to the pastor, confesses that she has cheated on her husband, uh, and the pastor says, you know, here's her confession, and pronounces absolution. Your sins are forgiven. As she is leaving the, you know, the confession absolution with the pastor, she says, well, what should I say to my husband? And he says, uh, and and she says, you know, should I? Should I tell him about the adultery? And the pastor responds to her, what adultery? Now, that story is told in order to try to embellish the sense of the gospel and the sense of God's forgetfulness of the sin. But what's the problem? The problem is that's a complete sin against the husband. And and that has not been dealt with. Uh, no, and it is similarly a sin, it is pastoral malpractice to simply say, I mean, because that communicates to the woman, anytime you go commit adultery, just come back here and it's erased, and never once are you responsible to go and handle this with your husband and, and, go and let him know what's going on, right? I mean, you, you've jeopardized his health, you've destroyed the marriage, uh, you've, ripped, you've ripped him to pieces, even if he doesn't know it, and he needs to begin healing and And so the Gospel in quotes here because it really isn't I, I'm not sure it can even be called the Gospel when it's I guess it is the Gospel it's just so terribly misused but you see this is the this is the world we're living in it's not a it's not strictly speaking a world of legalism, it's more a world of lawlessness, and the Gospel being used in service of that lawlessness and so your point is very well taken, Janet, that the Gospel doesn't mean that there that you don't have a responsibility to the people around you, whether that's a church or a community or family members or whomever you sinned against or whomever your sin might have affected. That's one of the, one of the great battles we have, not only in the Lutheran church, but in, in the whole of the church that, quote-unquote, gets grace or gets the gospel, is there's this, there's this push to say, um, well, the gospel just erases the sin. And that's not true. I mean, it's true that God forgives it and forgets it, but it's also true that there are consequences. There are other people hurt. There are other people involved. There are other people that need to be cared for. And how, how selfish, what a perversion of the gospel um, that pastor is guilty of in that instance. So, um, that, that all being uh, an aside from, from Kleinig's point, but maybe a, a necessary one. Uh, so, back to the original question, is there such a thing as righteous anger? Uh, yes. The psalm says, be angry and do not sin. Right? Um, Christ himself exhibited righteous anger in the temple. So, anger is not inherently evil. And, uh, of course, the, sa- the same argument that would be used to negate righteous anger, that nothing we do is righteous, would be used to negate all of the virtues which again is a reductionistic move and popular in Lutheran circles today, but what can we do other than stick to the scriptures and plain reason and argue against it? All right, well, are we ready to move on with Kleinig? Let's hit uh, the third, or excuse me, the second full paragraph on 246. Satan's tactic is simple in its execution. Our sins and hurts are best kept hidden away in us where they can be used surreptitiously to darken and confuse, to disorder and defile the conscience. Then, when the time is ripe, uh, when we face trouble or sickness or death, our evil secrets are brought out like a trump card and wielded against us. So Satan not only gets us to cover up and hide the dirt in our lives, he also digs it up and throws it at us. Christ deals with the impurity from our sin in two ways. On the one hand, he covers up our guilt and shame with his own righteousness and holiness so that we can stand before God the Father and our fellow saints with a good conscience. At first, He concentrates on rebuilding our faith in God's goodness and our love for our brothers and sisters in the family of God. He does not encourage us to discover the evil in our hearts, but he gets us to rely on the Father's grace and mercy, his pardon and forgiveness of us. He protects us from the accusation and condemnation of our adversary, the devil. Then, when we are ready for it, he allows Satan to dig up some sin or offense so that we let him, namely Christ, deal with it and fix it up. When the time is right, God turns the weapons of the evil one against him. In this way, the devil loses another foothold in our souls. His darkness is exposed and expelled by the light. Okay, so in the first place, uh, what Christ does to relieve the guilty conscience is he doesn't point us to the law, he doesn't point us to ourselves, but he points us to himself and to his cross. That's the whole idea of uh, extra nos outside of us, that if we look inside of us, we will see sin, we will see doubt, we will see the accusation of the law. If we look outside of us to Christ, then we see that, as he says on the cross, it is finished. Not only his Sin atoning death, but his perfect righteous life credited to us. And it is done and it is complete. And so this is how Christ strengthens us in the first place. And then as Satan attacks us with with some sin of the past or present, then we are equipped, as it were, to be pointed to Christ outside of us. And so then Satan ends up serving Christ. That's the irony here. So Satan ends up serving Christ by every time he brings up one of our sins, we immediately confess it as true and run to our Savior Jesus for forgiveness. Uh, we, we go to the Lord's Supper confessing our sins and receive Christ's body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so then God uses the, the weapons of the evil one against him. Make sense? Okay. Liz?
1: Um, so... How Christ does this with his word, or just working inside of us? or How does he accomplish this?
0: Yeah, I think it's, I, I mean, it's certainly through his word, no doubt about it. So, I mean, obviously his word is the external law and the external gospel that come to us and make us Christians and prepare us. And, um, properly speaking, it's the gospel, of course. And then, um and Satan attacks that. He attacks the word, and attacks that word um, again. By I think in, I think Kleining's point here would be attacks it in a sort of nebulous way. If he attacks it head on, you know we're we're ready for that attack. So the sort of backdoor way is this is this nebulous idea of guilt or this nebulous idea of offense, and then that begins to cloud out the word, right? And so then, how does, how does Christ um, clear the air? Again, it would be via his Ten Commandments, and it would be through the conscious, spirit-worked use of self-examination by, the, by means of the Ten Commandments. That would be Kleinig's way of saying it. Um, that we become aware of our sin once again, that we become strengthened, that we become aware of the devil's attack, we become aware of uh, what's going on. The whole point being that you know you're sitting there, and all of a sudden you know, or you're going through some tough time in your life, and all of a sudden Satan's digging up all this other stuff, or all this stuff you hadn't even thought about, or had never even experienced as guilty, is suddenly on top of you too, right? And that kind of that kind of attack, you're prepared. You know what to do. You recognize it as an attack. You don't recognize it as. Um, Woe is me! I'm confused. I'm lost. I I'm losing my faith. I you know I'm I'm in a tailspin. You recognize it as no, this is a satanic attack, and I need to go to my Lord Jesus. Whether that's to the pastor and in individual confession absolution, or whether that's to the Lord's Supper, whether that's to the Divine Service, or whether that's just simply to pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, yeah. Okay, so. Uh, Maybe that's enough. Maybe that's enough on on that. Let's let's wrap up this theme on the top of two forty eight. Oh yes, let's get you a microphone, and then we'll just jump to the end of this.
1: I think this is helpful, but at the same time, I have to say, I think I think of this card I kept because mm-hmm. it made me laugh. Like if if there's somebody you don't like, and they put their fork on the wrong side of the plate. Mm-hmm. You're mad at them. Mm-hmm. But if there's somebody you love, they can spill a bowl of spaghetti in your lap, and it's fine. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, it's like this general attitude that we have. That, well, the or- original sin in us, I think, Yeah. is behind all of it. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, that's a great point. Okay, let's go over to 248, and we'll finish out this section. Three lines down from the top. Jesus destroys the work of the devil in a strange way. He removes it from us by suffering its full effect in his death. In exchange for the sins that we have committed, he gives us his righteousness and innocence. In exchange for the sins that have been committed against us, he gives us his purity and health. His blood does not just just purify us from all sin, it also cleanses us from all injustice. A reference to uh, John, First John, one seven through nine. He gets rid of the rats by removing the garbage from our souls. So I think the takeaway point here is that just as the cross is the answer for the sins that we ourselves have committed, the cross is also the answer for those sins that others have committed against us. And I would, I would say very concretely, you can look at Jesus himself on the cross and those who have crucified him unjustly. And he says, to, he says you know, praying to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we can gain strength from that, strength from that pattern and attitude to, to find forgiveness in the suffering of Christ uh, for those who have sinned against us. And so there's healing not only of our own souls for the sins we've committed, but there's healing for our own souls for the sins that have been committed against us. And that, that's a very important, perhaps neglected, since the first side of the coin is so emphasized, maybe that second half of the coin uh, is underemphasized. emphasized But where do, where do you go when people sin against you? Where do you go when you're mistreated, abused, violated... And the answer is the same. it's to the cross, and through a careful meditation and study of Christ and him crucified, we find the strength to forgive others. and uh, And then I think, I think, although Kleinig doesn't go into that, and I won't spend the time trying to do it, I think in the same way the, the means of grace work. you know, because what does it mean to go to the cross? Well, to think on it, meditate on it, dwell on it. It's, let that word be inside of you, that word of the cross. That's, that's what we're talking about. So it is the word. But then second to that, I think you could do the same thing with the sacrament of the altar because it's just the cross extended to you. Okay, so that's Kleinig rounding out this section. Uh, Barry's got a comment, and then we'll, we'll look to move on here.
1: Um, I think in Scripture it says somewhere when don't come for forgiveness from God, If you have unforgiveness in your life horizontally with other people, otherwise it'll be blocked, Uh, the forgiveness from God. Is that right? In other words, go first to receive uh, or uh, seek forgiveness and give it to another before you come to ask forgiveness could you comment on that? Is that? Uh... Yeah,
0: there's two scriptures that speak to that off the top of my head. and One would be when you come and bring your gift to the altar, if, if you remember that your brother has something against you, uh, go first and be reconciled to your brother and then present your gift to the altar. So that means, yeah, the, the horizontal needs to be squared away. It's, it's part and parcel of the vertical. These can't be separated. You can't go and offer your gift at the altar. You receive God's forgiveness, be in perfect harmony with him, and then um, hate your brother. And be antagonistic towards your brother. As I think about it, that's really what huge portions of 1 John are about. And I, we even quoted from 1 John earlier. So that would be the, I guess that would be a third text that pops into my mind. And really, if you wanted to study that topic, that's probably where I'd go, um, would be First John. Uh, the second that initially popped into my mind was Matthew 18 and the, the story of the unforgiving servant. Remember he's forgiven much uh, astronomically much, and then he goes out and finds someone who owes him a pittance, and he strangles him and chokes him and says, "Give me you know give me my money and the other servants see this and report that back to the master, and the master uh, throws him in prison and uh, Jesus' comment is um, you know, the same will happen to you unless you likewise forgive so yeah I think I think the point there is that we cannot divorce the vertical reception of God's forgiveness and the horizontal forgiveness that we have for one another. We simply cannot divorce those. So, as we come to the communion table, we need to examine ourselves in these relationships where there may be unforgiveness on our part or uh, with others. Yes, as part of our okay. Yes, that's true. Now, the I think the I think the other side of the so so one error would be. That you simply ignore that and you just go with, you you try to, you try contrary to the scriptures uh, to just receive the vertical and ignore the horizontal. I can receive God's forgiveness. Yeah, exactly. That is human nature. So that would be one error. But the other error would be some sort of, well, I haven't forgiven them perfectly therefore i can't go to therefore i haven't received god's forgiveness or i can't go to the lord's supper that would be the other error and satan would be more than happy to have you in either error right and so then there's this question of like well what does it mean to forgive okay very practically speaking you're not going to find this in a dogmatics textbook or anything else but very practically speaking as a pastor i found this question helpful do you want that person to be in hell that's, that's a pretty practical question. If the answer is, uh, do you want this person to be in hell on account of what they've done to you? If the answer is no, that's, that, that, let's put it this way that's a seed of forgiveness. That's the beginning of forgiveness. We want more. We want more of that. But something's there, right? Something's there. And so it's not about, it's not about sitting here and qualifying and quantifying forgiveness. And then only when you achieve perfect forgiveness can you then go to the Lord's Supper. If that were the case, none of us could go. Uh, but, it's, but it's seeing, rather, is, is the, the same heart that receives God's forgiveness and is living and active, is that showing itself forth in some way toward others? And that's a very basic question. Uh, and, and generally speaking... Um, most Christians, when you put that to them, even if they're even if they're really struggling with forgiveness, even if it takes them a good long thirty seconds to answer that question, will say, "No." Yeah, and that's great, perfect. We've got we yeah we've got a, we've got a seed planted or we've got a foothold on the mountain or whatever you want to yeah we've got something we can work with that. Yeah, Judith.
1: I. I can see how Matthew 18 applies to that, but I don't understand how 1 John 1 applies to that injustice part. It talks about forgiving sins, but um, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Mm -hmm. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, mm-hmm. and I don't see anything in those three verses that hits that other area.
0: Yeah. Well. To so be, maybe I'm. Well, to be clear, that's up. Kleinig's usage. Yes. Uh, not mine. And if I and I think what Kleinig is is suggesting is in the language of uh, to cleanse us from all, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That that unrighteousness includes sins that have been committed against us. Okay. That's Kleinig's read. Now, you can, you can take it or not, but I, that's the way he's using it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, ready to move on to the armor of light? You sure can.
1: If you have a relationship, let's say, for example, with someone that's a very difficult relationship, ongoing. Yes. Okay. And say you're, um, let's say, theoretically, you're ready to forgive the other person, but the other person isn't ready to reconcile. Yes. (coughs) Do you just have to let let that continue? Or what what do you, you know, what is, it can, can, okay, this is a basic question. Can you... On your part, forgive, even though the other person doesn't want to do any, have anything to do with you, basically.
0: Yes. So, yeah, that would be a scripture like, um, uh, insofar as you are able, be at peace with all men. And so that would be, even if they're not at peace with you, you be at peace with them. That would be... Um, it, but you, you remind, I mean, you remind me of another aspect. And the other aspect is, you can forgive someone and really want nothing to do with them this side of heaven. Because because you don't want to be abused again, or because you know that that person leads you in ways that are not going to lead you to heaven, right? So you can forgive someone, and then and the very best place, the very best thing that you can do for your soul and for theirs, is to move across the globe from them. I, I mean that is not a, that is not an unchristian sentiment. That is a wise and prudent sentiment. Uh, there is a God, we, we are required to forgive, and we are required to love, and sometimes that takes a form that is contrary to the world's ideas of forgiveness and love. Big deal. The world's wrong about everything. Uh, but it is completely in service to their soul being further toward heaven and your soul being further toward heaven. Um, there are some people that we just simply this side of heaven we'll clash with or have clashed so badly with in the past that it is better for them and us and, and everyone else if uh, we just don't, don't torture ourselves and torture everyone else and jeopardize um, the, sp- the spiritual health that we have. So, uh, you know, that, that needs to be said too, I think. Yeah. Okay, uh, the armor of light. Let's see how far we can get here with what time we have left. Let's look at the second paragraph. Here's a a statement that is not likely to sell many uh, Christian books. We have all that we need for spiritual combat, yet we possess nothing in ourselves, for all that we have and all that we need to have is available to us in Christ and only in Christ. He is the champion in the battle. We borrow everything that we need from him. The battle belongs to him. He alone is our salvation, the one who delivers us from the enemy. He is the victor in the contest. All our armor and our ammunition come from him. So a wonderful point and a wonderful reminder that sometimes in talking about spiritual warfare and the armor of God, we picture ourselves at the center. That's not true. Christ is at the center. Let's continue. What then is our armor, Kleine it is the armor of light, Romans thirteen twelve. It is Christ himself with his full regalia, his righteousness, purity, and holiness. We, as it were, don him for the battle. God the Father gives his regalia to us as his adopted children. It is therefore the armor of God, Ephesians 6. We cannot see it and the protection it provides for us. It is invisible to us. But it is visible to Satan and all the powers of darkness. Now he brings up the priests of the Old Testament and, uh, you know, how they were, how they were, uh, how their vestments were sprinkled with blood, and similarly, our our garments are those that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's where we pick up in the next paragraph, the second full paragraph on two forty-nine. Like those priests, we have robes that have been washed in the blood, uh, Revelation seven. The blood of Jesus, by which he has ransomed and redeemed us, sorry, there's so many scriptures quoted here, justifies us before God the Father, cleanses us from all impurity, and makes us holy. Jesus gives us that blood to drink in Holy Communion. There he sprinkles our hearts, not just our bodies, with his blood, so that we are holy through and through. In Communion, his blood speaks a better word to us than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood does not cry out for justice and revenge, but for pardon and justification. It contradicts Satan when he condemns us for sinning against God and others, uh, and others for sinning against us. It covers and protects us with Christ's own righteousness and holiness. By our faithful reception and reliance on his blood in Holy Communion, we stand under the protection of Christ Just as the Israelites were kept safe from the angel of death in Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb. Thus we overcome the evil one by the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God. So what we see here, of course, is a theme Kleinig has brought up before. But that is that the, the blood of the lamb truly is our greatest spiritual weapon. And that blood of the Lamb sprinkles us clean. That is received very concretely in Holy Communion, of course, which Christ says is nothing less than the New Testament in his blood. Again, if you look through all the red letters in Scripture, all the things that Jesus says and say, where does Jesus tell us what the New Testament is? The only place he says it is when he takes his cup, the cup of his blood, and says, this is the New Covenant in my blood. This is the New Testament in my blood. So the New Testament, the New Covenant itself, is the cup. And if you compare that to the Old Testament, you remember the Old Testament is ratified when Moses takes the blood and sprinkles it on the people. So that's the comparison. Jesus now sprinkles us with his blood in the New Covenant, um, cleansing us not only in our bodies but also in our souls. And this cleansing, then, this is the present tense need for Holy Communion. Because the devil is constantly assaulting us. And we are sinning, and our consciences are becoming defiled and guilty on account of what we've done. Others are sinning against us. And again, our consciences are becoming defiled, and we're feeling worthless on the one hand, or uh, resentful on the other hand. How how does Christ real-time combat these ever-present attacks? Namely, through his blood and the cleansing that takes place there. So the Holy Sacrament, the New Testament present in our midst is Christ's ongoing pastoral care for us and it is his ongoing strengthening us cleansing us for the spiritual battle that is, that is present tense raging on and will continue to rage on until we're brought safely from this, this shadow of death. Okay, so the key here is relying on Christ rather than ourselves. Um, Simply one more point to, I think that Kleinig brings up in this section and that's over on 250 and that is uh, that the authority of Christ as opposed to knowledge or power um, and this is, a, this is something that Kleinig really goes into. I, I'm not sure it is in this book. I think it's in some of his lectures maybe in some of his other writings but he makes this distinction between authority and power and that The devil operates, his general distinction is that the devil operates by way of power, by way of force. Christ and his kingdom work by way of authorization. And you can see that Christ um, says, for example, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. So Christ speaks in an authoritative manner, in which you can can hear the root of author. It's a creative manner. And it is uh, given by the Father to the Son, and, and from the Son to us. And that's the authority which trumps power. Power appears to win the day because it sort of forces and pushes itself around. But ultimately, authority is not moved. And authority is not changed. And so, uh, this, is, this is key then. Um, you know, in ver- on page 250, uh, the second full paragraph, subordination to the authority of Christ is the foundation for success in spiritual warfare. For at its core, it has to do with authority rather than knowledge and power. Uh, Knowledge puffs up and power all too often becomes violent or uh, becomes misused and abused. Authority does not. If it's Christ's authority, we simply subordinate ourselves to his authority, speak what he has spoken Um, And that is the avoidance of knowledge which puffs up and power which corrupts, you see. It's a different thing. We bind ourselves to his word and avoid those two pitfalls. And two pitfalls that in spiritual warfare it's often thought that, well, you know, knowledge is the weapon you need or power is the weapon you need. Neither of which is true, both of which factor into the enemy's hand. Supporting ourselves to the authority of Christ is what we actually need. So, if that interests you, you can take a closer look at that in, in that paragraph and, and in the preceding. But that's really all I wanted to say about this idea of the armor of light. Okay, Shall we go on to spiritual weapons? Our spiritual weapons. So, if you look what he's done, he's Taking a look at the armor of light, that would be defensive, so to speak. And here are our spiritual weapons, offensive, so to speak. Beginning at the beginning. As we serve under the authority of Christ in his holy militia, we may speak and act in his name. The name of Jesus is the name above all names. At his name, all creatures and in heaven and earth, every angel and every human being will one day bow in homage, in willing adoration, or in unwilling surrender, Philippians 2, 9-11. Salvation, deliverance from darkness, is found in no other name except his. That name was given to us and placed as a seal on us when we were baptized. His name makes and keeps us holy. It is our safety and protection from the evil one. It equips us for combat. We wield his name as our weapon in the battle. In the face of attack, we may therefore use the name of Jesus by calling on him in prayer and by confessing him as our Lord. By the use of his name in rebuke and proclamation, in our confession of faith and our songs of praise, we send Satan and his cronies on their way. References to Mark 16 and Acts 16. The demons submit to us as they did to the 70 evangelists when we speak and act in the name of Jesus. That's what Luther was thinking of when he wrote uh, in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, One Little Word Can Fell Him. And I subsidized that for you with, his, uh, with that article and, and Luther's exact quote. Since we are authorized to act in the name of Jesus, we, like him, engage in spiritual combat with the word of God. This is the weapon that Christ wielded against Satan in the desert. Remember when Christ was tempted, fascinatingly, he doesn't speak on his own authority, but rather speaks the very word of God. With this weapon, he routed Satan. With it, he also banished the unclean spirits from the souls that they had haunted. God's word is our main offensive weapon in spiritual combat. When that word is preached and taught, performed and enacted, the demons are banished. So, there's a a sentence worth highlighting, because since we're looking at spiritual weapons, God's word is our main offensive weapon in spiritual combat. Now, I think he began with Jesus, lest we get the idea that, sort of, if I wield God's word, I'm sufficient. That's not the case. But simply, um, everything done in the name of Jesus, by the authority of Jesus, we are in Christ Jesus. That's the foundation. And then having that, being that, we wield the word of God. So I like what Kleinig has done here. We wield the word of God then as our weapon, um, being in Christ already ourselves and under his authority. Let's look at the last two lines on 251. When we hear it and read it, speak it and meditate on it, Use it in prayer and praise. Trust in it to judge and to justify us. The powers of darkness are dispelled and the work of Satan is undone. God's word is the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6.17. The two-edged sword that the Holy Spirit uses to judge, save, and to remove what is evil and heal what is amiss in us. God's word is powerful because it is inspired and filled by his Holy Spirit. Through his word, Christ speaks the Holy Spirit into us to animate, liberate, and enlighten our spirits. Scripture brings with it the anointing of the Spirit who makes and keeps us holy. As long as the word of God remains in us, we have the strength from God's Spirit to overcome the evil one as long as we remain in his word, we know the truth that sets us free. John 8. We therefore fight the good fight of faith each day by using the word of God in meditation and prayer. Okay, so that's the key to take it from another angle. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, and Satan is daily attacking our faith, and so to daily have that faith sustained and indeed strengthened, we need the word of God daily. And, I think Kleine is going to get there ultimately, but, yeah, he is. But the point being, that's as simple as the Lord's Prayer. This doesn't have to be a great, big, extended thing. Uh, It can be, certainly, where you read scripture and pray psalms and spend a good deal of your day doing this. It can certainly be that, and and good on you if that's the case. But this can also be as simple as praying the Lord's Prayer faithfully and praying, praying short prayers throughout the day as your vocation demands it, as your calling demands it, as you see people in need, or you see the attacks of the evil one, or you experience them yourself. All right, well, that's sufficient for the day. So let's pick up at 2.52 and go to... I don't think we'll get that far. Let's go to... Well... Let's just say 262. That'll take us to the middle of a section, but that's life. 252 to 262. The Lord be with you.